I remember the day before I started, uh, Sunday night, so start on Monday, and then the manager called and said, you know, Gerald used to do wines back a long time ago. I said, just for six months before NS. Well, none of us here have any wine knowledge, so you probably have the most. So tomorrow when you come to work, instead of being a captain on the floor, we just elevate you to a wine captain, we pay you 50 bucks more. And <laughs> yeah, pay you bucks more per month. And then we, you just take care of the wines as well. Okay, lo. Have you ever been told you should get a more sensible career? On this show, we speak with creators and artists in Asia who ignored that advice to find success in their creative field. We'll learn how they paved their own path, dealt with roadblocks and challenges, and gained hard-earned lessons on their way to building a unique and singular foolish career. I'm your host, Timmy Sitanko. I'm looking forward to interviewing today's guest. Not just because it's good to have a sommelier friend, but also because he's an example of how one can pursue a career in a field that is sometimes misunderstood or dismissed. Choosing to become a sommelier is unconventional in many parts of Asia, and a hard graft in a place like Singapore where alcohol is expensive and wine is not baked into the culture. At age 25, he was the youngest person to win the Singapore National Sommelier Competition, and is the current chair of the Sommelier Association of Singapore. Today, sommelier, restaurant manager, and wine consultant Gerald Liu is talking to us about his foolish career. Are you drinking any wine now? No, not yet. I'm drinking then we, like... Then, it, then, it, then the interview ends here. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> Actually, I did think about pouring wine. Then I thought, wait, I better, no, I better wait. <laughs> no, no, no. Just kidding. Okay, good. Okay. But you can drink wine if you like. No, I've got to work later, sadly. So <laughs> no, no wine for me. If not, once I start, I cannot stop. So, yeah. yeah, I know. Me too. Yeah. Okay. Huh. You know, when I was looking through your Instagram, I saw this interesting post when yeah. Circuit Breaker came in. And yeah. I learned that your corkscrew had seen 4,964 working days. So you've been at this for a long time. Uh, yeah. It's been a while. It's been a while. Yeah. Gerald knew he wanted to do something that allowed him to keep learning new skills and meeting people. He went through a hospitality course, but failed at it. But he knew he wanted to be in the industry, so he gravitated toward the bar and started teaching himself about wine. I picked up a hospitality course, and I realized I sucked at the course because everybody was in the hospitality course. Was, they actually knew they wanted to be a chef, they wanted to, or a hotelier, or they wanted to be a, 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 tour, a tour guide or something like that. They knew. So that's why they chose the course. But this fella chose it because, like, oh, yeah, you know what? I like people. This course I love people, so I come. I was very bad at the practical parts, some of the cooking parts of the course and all that. Because everyone who was there, had, a lot of them had some kind of experience cooking somewhere or like working in the kitchen. They have all these amazing stories that are Netflix-worthy, you know. But I don't, I'm, oh, I don't know, I don't know how to cook. So I was a very, very bad uh, student. Uh. So I, I decided that uh, maybe I should take a part-time job in the industry just to have some underground experience. And obviously when I was on the ground, I started realizing that if I would do F&B, it's either you go to the kitchen or you stay on the floor. Mm. So I know kitchen, no, meh. So floor, then you look at the floor, I'm like, okay, you know what? I don't think I want to be a restaurant manager. So I decided to do the beverage part. And of course, at the age, you're like, wow, free alcohol is great. If I were, <laughs> How yeah, old were you? You were already drinking 17, age at 18, this time. Yeah. 17, so 18, yeah. below drinking age. Yes, below drinking age. So I was only allowed to work in the bar, but only on the floor. You're not allowed to work and handle alcohol. Mm. Yeah, so, yeah. Mm. And I, I fell in love with the, the amount of knowledge that is required like, to do your job more efficiently than another person. Mm. So that's how I got involved in beverage learning. And then eventually okay. just transited to wine. Then I fell asleep and next thing you know, it's 13 years later. Kind of thing. <laughs> Were you self-educated first? Yes, yes, yes. I was. Because you know nowadays it's great because 
there are all these courses that are available online and these courses are very well marketed not just on their own but also through the glorifying of these professions through netflix through youtube things like that people film videos of chefs and sommeliers and i know it's very inspirational but in the past i mean i mean, talk about 12 13 years ago you, you don't have these things so what i did was i, I just i asked around but the industry wasn't very helpful there wasn't a uh, a, a sommelier association there wasn't anybody that could help all you know is that all the best wine guys are in either Raffles Hotel or maybe Les Amis mm. yeah and then these guys are very busy right so you email them and nobody replies you you know so okay um, no choice lah you know it's either you, you wait you sit down there and do nothing or you make something happen for yourself yeah. so I just went to Kinokuniya lah then I bought a, a wine for dummies and French wine for dummies my first two books okay yeah Gerald got a job working in the wine cellar at a high-end restaurant called Waterfront Restaurant by Indochine and was finally able to gain some practical experience. My job was just to open stuff. So I just sat in the cellar or do stuff near the cellar and then uh, every time I put the books in the cellar, the two books I had, the two <laughs> precious books I had, <laughs> every time somebody ordered something, oh, okay, Sancerre from Loire Valley. So I'll go into the cellar, I'll pick up the sonsere, I put it on the, 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 the trolley and prepare all the glassware. And then while waiting for the sonsere to come, I'll just flip the book quickly. Okay, Ali, I know something. But I never really got to serve the tables. Then after national service, I managed to find a job as a wine captain. Mm-hmm. So it was like a fine dining Chinese kind of thing. Uh, they didn't have a cellar, but they had wine racks and uh, wine cabinets. Lah. So mm. also managing close to about 500 labels. And I remember the day before I started, uh, Sunday night or so start on Monday and then the manager called and said you know Gerald used to do wines back a long time ago I said just for six months I said I would be called NS well none of us here have any wine knowledge so you probably have the most so tomorrow when you come to work right, instead of being a captain you know, on the floor we just elevate you to a wine captain and pay you 50 bucks more and <laughs> yeah pay you bucks more per month and then we, you just take care of the wines as well okay lo. so yeah, so I started my first job yeah, one thousand two hundred and fifty dollars, six day work week, before CPF. Wow. So it's like pretty much nothing, yeah. yeah, but it paid to be first or be the only one. In a yeah, way. I mean you're the official wine captain, so get that. So so it started like that, and that's where everything else fell into place. We have lots of people will come and we have a wine captain now. You can invite him to a tasting, and that's how I started getting access to trade tastings, and that's when I started meeting people from the industry, And mm. then you realize that whoa, you're the bottom of the hill. Actually, you told me another story which mm. I thought was quite surprising that you were walking around one of these wine shows and just sniffing and then someone yeah. approached you who recognized Correct. your interest. Yes, and uh, one of the first few tastings I went was a Louis Jadot tasting. Yeah, so Louis Jadot is a producer from Burgundy. The guy displayed all the villages that they had. So there were maybe 18 different wines. And I was still looking there, staring at the whole 18 wines. And I was trying to remember my poor little Wine for Dummies book, right? And I'm like, all of them are the same. They're all Pinot Noir. So how the hell I know what's the difference? Where do I even start? Is there a way? Do you arrange it left to right, right to left? I don't know. Oh shit, man. So I just stood down there for a while. I stared at stuff. I just tried to figure out what is what. And then uh, this gentleman came up to me and I said, hey, you know, I, you look lost. Lah. Do you know what you're doing? I said, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> they said, would you like me to help you out where to start? So you should start from this one and maybe go up this way, taste it you know, texturally. You know, if you are learning wines, you're new to this, taste it texturally, find out the differences between the vineyards and stuff like that. Oh, great. So I, like, at least there's some kind of guide. So, so he was someone from Louis Jadot. He wasn't. That. He wasn't. It was an uncle, an old guy with a ponytail. And then he told me he had a wine bar in Funan called Cafe Amigo and his name was Tommy Lam 
Uh, he became the first president of the Somali Association. He, Somali Association of Singapore. Uh, he founded the association after that. And then he invited me to one of his classes. So Tommy was conducting WSET classes. Uh. He said, if you're interested in wine education, I offer WSET. I guess at some point he was marketing his business, sure. Mm. But you know, the approach was very kind. And he said, that, why do you sit in one of the WSET lessons I have? For free. After you see the lessons, you tell me if you're interested. If you're interested, then you can tag and give you the costs, and then you can decide whether you want to take it with me or not. No pressure. So I went. I went sat, sat in the class for free to listen. Like, oh, that's very good and structured knowledge, lah. Great for Asian boy like me. I, to become a sommelier, you have to get to WSET four. No, no, wait. No, no. Sommelier is just a title and appointment that you hold. Okay. Yeah, your what, what, whatever academia or qualifications that you have, it's just extra, lah. Yeah, the, it's just a perception, a notion that we are, we are always trying to draw. It must be some kind of certification. You've got to be running some beautiful restaurant. Mm. But it doesn't have to be. As long as you are in the service of wine and beverage in a restaurant, you are considered a sommelier. Mm. Whether or not what certifications you have, that's secondary. But of course, it gives people confidence when you have a yeah. certain level of, of qualification. The old sommeliers, the great sommeliers of the past, they don't have all these master sommelier diplomas. It didn't really exist. And, and they are great. You know? I look at Rajat Pa, right? Mm. He's on Netflix. He has nothing, but he wins, he wins all the awards. If you look at all the best sommeliers of the world, none of them are master sommeliers. I, I strongly encourage people to take accreditation. But I think the most important is the passion and the natural drive and instinct like, to be good. It doesn't make a sommelier less than the other if he doesn't have a certain accreditation. It's like saying, oh, this, this guy is a degree holder. That guy is a diploma holder. The degree holder definitely has better character and work ethics than this other guy. Wow, is that how you're going to judge people? So, okay, Lord, I borrowed money from my, my mom, I remember. Because the cost was very expensive. I spent a couple of thousand dollars. And then all my money I spent on tasting wines. So, I went and then I passed my first round like, of, the, of the court. Like, Gerald continues to progress in the industry and buys a third book, Italian Wine for Dummies by Mary Ewing Mulligan, then is encouraged by Tommy Lam to take the master sommelier exam that had just been introduced to Singapore. Okay, la, I mean, I have to lose, I just joined. So obviously, like, I did badly because I have no clue what to expect. So I remember opening the paper, right? maybe 100 questions, I know 10. And out of the 10 that I know, maybe 5 I, I think I know. Oh my God, I got to fail. It's the first time I opened a paper in my whole life. You know, I don't know so many things. Huh? But... It was good because I knew what I need to do. Mm. So from 09 to the next competition, every day I just grind. So every day, was, I remember sleeping very little. Because of my work, I, 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 lost, a, I lost a very serious relationship. Yeah. Then 010. So 010, you know, I, I joined the competition again. I think there's a considerable effort that I made a semi-final position. Mm-hmm. And I think that was very good for me. It's an improvement already. Yeah. But I think there was some luck involved and I went into the finals. And during the finals, my two competitors, basically, we probably all screwed up, but they screwed up more than me. Eh? <laughs> I was lucky. So, you know, it's, it's like that, you see. That was when it, it took everybody by surprise because this guy has only been in the industry for like two years, two and a half years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Seriously. And then suddenly he won and who the hell is this guy, man? And you could tell it just by the appearance. Besides my stupid face, I was wearing a very non-traditional sommelier outfit to compete. What were you wearing? Everybody was wearing the sommelier outfit with black, white, tie, apron inside with a jacket, overcoat. One of them even had a tail jacket, man. One hardcore no tail jacket, you know, jacket with tail. Yeah, and then I rocked in, right? Light grey suit, pink shirt, grey tie. Then the tie is the kind of cotton woven tie, you know. Baby blue pocket square. No socks. That sounds cool uh, today. No so- yeah, very Italian. and No socks, <laughs> uh, brown colour, uh, loafers, kind of thing like that. But now yeah, that's so- totally accepted, right? People like 
ourselves, uh, we, we started to push the norms of what looks like a, a traditional SOM and how it's perceived. But it was a slow transition, you see. And of course, along the way, there's so much criticism and so much flack that you get just by not conforming to the norms. Lah. Following his win, Gerald was promoted to head sommelier, a fun job that also had reputation and authority. He was active in the small but growing professional wine community. One day, he was helping a friend launch a wine bar when she suggested a career change. I said that it's a, it's a stupid idea, don't open a wine bar. But she's a very smart lady and, 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 and she was very determined and, and driven to do that. So she went ahead anyway to do it. And then when it was opening, there was a lot of hiccups. So I was trying to help her out as a friend. And then eventually she said, why don't you just join me? It was a slightly difficult decision because back at my old job, I was already established in the company after so many years. Very familiar with all the processes and how the, 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 how the company works. I was sitting in a position which was a good position. I had a lot of uh, authority. And we were, we, were, and we were talking about good money, big bucks. Uh, money was great. And then you give it all up for something so small scale and a new setup. But then again, it was a leap of faith like, because I was young. So mm. what do I have to lose? Just try. Like, some, you lose some time, but at least you gain some experience. So I just said, okay, let's go from ordering 30 cases to three bottles. So you, you know... You, you realize the scale that you drop, you, you go down a notch. What was that like the first, the early days? So basically, if uh, you open a place and you have this idea, right? What you want to do. Mm. I want to sell wines like that. I want to be honest. I want to charge cheap. I want to give good price. I don't want to overcharge people. Yeah, but then again, because you're so new, you don't have much marketing budget. And so it was really more word of mouth. And then people were just walking up and down Duxton Hill and they're like, oh, what the hell is this new place? A wine bar. No, I don't feel like drinking wine. Bye-bye. And then because you, you call it Prelim Wine Destroy, you realize, okay, anybody who doesn't want wine, they just F off. Mm-hmm. And no one really knows who you are. So it was building table by table. And some people will come in and, hey, you know what? It's a quiet place. Let's just go there for a beer. Because we want to chat. So I serve beer. I serve some cocktails. I serve wine. I serve whiskey. Everything. I was serving everything. Just a drinking hole. Yeah. But, but what I was really good for, or we were trying to be good at least, uh, is wine. But I wasn't moving enough wine. It was a very slow grind. And then one friend introduced the next friend, next friend introduced the friend. And it just grew like that now. And it was a very slow process. I mean, it's nine years old and it's still growing. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, and that's how long it took. There's no formula, man. You know how you play video games, right? Mm. And then uh, you, want to, you want to level up the character. Uh, you just go whack the three one one thousand times. Uh, okay, like that. Uh. <laughs> yeah, nowadays there's like so much help and then there's people trying to advise and uh, you know, all these online platforms Then you can get a lot more marketing very quickly. So people drive, are driven to your place very quickly. But it wasn't like that. Uh. But in a good way, we had time to grow and figure out. Oh, it's a bad way for the, for the shareholders to have to wait. Uh. One of the things I've always appreciated about Gerald is he really gets into the education part of wine. He tells a great story about each bottle and feels a responsibility to represent the winemaker who makes the product. You could just do a list and people come and order something and just pour and serve. But then again, if you don't tell people why you chose this wine, what's so special about it, then you're just a vending machine. You just put a coin and you dispense. Uh. Hey, why you need a sommelier? You don't need that. Uh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then again, why, why you are familiar? Because you bring to life this inanimate object. And then if you truly like your industry and you fall in love with these things, you realize you fall in love with the people who made this product. This is their livelihood. This is a family thing. It's their custodians, their guardians, their protectors, if you put it in whatever fancy Netflixy way. Pardon mm-hmm. me for using that so often. They're <laughs> um, the, the custodians of their craft. And this craft was honed was grown by their families or generations. And your job as a sommelier is to bridge this story across to someone. I think sometimes some sommeliers lose the plot on that. 
you know, they are so concerned with just serving the uh, good wine, best wine. Is it as fun as it looks visiting wineries, hanging out with the wine guys, with the with the makers? I, I think if it's a social visit and you're just going to drink and talk, then yes, for sure it's very fun. But of course, for us, it's work. It can be very tiring. After a while, there are days, there are days where like, oh my goodness, today is such a packed schedule. And maybe the wineries or the wines, uh, you, are un- you, you aren't looking so f- forward so much today. Okay, today it's a full day of Cabernet Sauvignon. I don't oh really God. feel like... How many visits would you do in a day? Yeah, it depends, man. Uh, you can go as light as two or three visits a day. So as heavy as like eight. Oh my God. Yeah, eight, ten maybe. Uh, sometimes they're not visits. Sometimes they're just tastings in one location. And then maybe that day you taste, I don't know, 100, 200 wines. Of course, you need to know what you're going there for. You need to be very focused. Mm-mm. And uh, yeah, you, know, you, you find enjoyment, the little things. But with everything, there must be a price to pay in a way. You know, there's a trade-off. La. The trade-off being? There are times where you just need to be in professional mode and you're not just drinking for the heck and talking nonsense. Yeah, you're, <laughs> people invited you there for a purpose. You do a job. Yeah. You know, and these jobs are very important. Ten guys sit around a table debating whether this guy should be 89 points or 90 points. It's inconsequential to some other person. But look, it means a lot to this producer because if you are 89 points, you are bronze medal. If you are 90 points, you are silver medal. Because you are silver medal, you can charge $1 more per bottle. And if you make 300,000 bottles, that can send one of your kids to school for a lifetime. So you have to think of it this way. And this is all the all these 10 guys are, are just deliberating, right? It's very easy. Right? No, la, I think 92. La, you know, no, uh, 31.5. You know, this guy goes like, no, I think it sucks. It's not my cup of tea, so I'm going to give it 86 points. Oh, uh, bro, then you're not objective, right? Because you don't like it. Your style, not mm. your style. Yeah. yeah, and then you see this, some of these guys. They head out after a round of tasting of 20, 30 wine. Head out for two cigarettes and a coffee. And they come and continue tasting. Wow, okay lah. Maybe you have taste buds that I don't have. La, so I, Superhuman I, I, taste buds. Yeah. This, like, so you've gotten to a stage that you have this massive knowledge of wine. And what I've seen you do more recently is start to look at how wine can work with Asian flavors. When did yeah. that start and why? You're Asian familiar, so you need to be good at your own thing as well. Right? Mm-hmm. I think it's very sad when here you are telling people you are professional in, in food and beverage. And... You are, as an Asian, Southeast Asian to be specific, mm. you know, here you are trying to teach your people about somebody else's culture and then you don't know anything about your own culture. What the hell? I think quite embarrassing, right? I think you're not getting your priorities right. That's what I feel. Uh. It's something that's very close to my heart. Uh. I, I think that before you can yeah, teach somebody about somebody else, you need to have some kind of self-mastery of yourself uh, and your culture. Yeah. You cannot say that you are a master, but you can say that you are always trying to achieve this. Okay, Alexander Pe uh-huh. understudied with you for a while uh-huh. and went on to become the sommelier at the Four Seasons. What's your philosophy of mentorship? How do you choose to take on someone like that? Because uh, that's a lot of time for you, right? I spend a, a, a significant amount of time just figuring it out mm. and banging walls. Uh. And the thing is that when I was banging all these walls, nobody gave me a hammer. And I realized that how I wished someone helped me. And I was lucky because I met somebody. So when I see people like that, I just approach them. I'm like, hey, are you guys like into wine? So what you plan to do? We find out a bit more. Of course, I don't immediately go like, hey, you want to work with my mentor here? But I just recommend. I say, if you really like this and you think that it might be something that you want to make money out of, I think you should 
work somewhere lah. Physical, mm. it's a hands-on experience, you see. And then you, you see if you really like what you're doing. I leave it in their court. They have to choose you. I'll set some realistic goals for you to, to really become a sommelier. You, there's a, there's a, a rough timeline. Like. In general. Be- I think to be a decent sommelier that you can stand alone in about two years. Alex described it as an accelerated, hands-on experience. Those were his exact words. What does that look like? Okay, so I think because it's, it's a wine bar, right? You meet all kinds of customers every day. So you may be serving a, a very casual, nice glass of uh, Pinot Gris at one point, And next table, you may serve a Grand Cru from Burgundy mm. at 10 times the price point. And the way you handle the customer, the way that you serve the wine, you handle the wine, uh, it will differ. Although the core thing it remains the same, which, which is uh, you, you put the glassware down, you pour the wine, you tell the story, and then you move off. But how you behave during the entire service process, it makes a bit of a difference. Uh. And because you, it's so diverse, right? All kinds of wines you serve every day at Prelim. And then you serve it not just by bottle, you serve it in, by the glass. And you don't just serve it by the glass, you serve it in different sizes. You serve flights. And then you have to conform to people's whims. Remember you came and then you're like, oh, I'm feeling blue today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. You can have people who will give you things like, like this, for example. Oh, some people will go like, I want stuff that reminds me of the 90s. What okay. the hell? Yeah, so you have to figure something out. Or wines that are exciting, the storyline, a theme. We do things like the women of wine. We do things like wines in movies. So versus a classic restaurant setting, people just look at the wine list, they pick something out, push the wine out, you explain the wine, you pour. Over here, I guess it's a lot more to think about sometimes mm. and in a much quicker pace. In one night, you just taste everything and drink everything. And in the wine bar like this, there is no differentiation in the social standing of a wine. All the wines get a similar glass. Of course, we get specific glasses for different grape varietals, but everyone gets a glass like that. It doesn't mean that it's very expensive that only Jero can serve you. Nope. Everybody will serve you. Everybody will treat you the same. You eat the same as at the table. There's nothing special about mm-hmm. you. So we try to treat everybody. Yeah. Okay, final question. In mm-hmm. a creative career such as yours, how important are talent and passion and how far can they get you? In a Singaporean context, what the hell your parents spend so much money training you up? So because of that, you won't know whether you got talent or not. Because mm-hmm. in the first place, the talent pool got no pool, bro. You don't know. You're jumping into open water and you're like, okay, let's just see what happens here. And there's very little people to benchmark yourself to. And then you don't even know what, how to benchmark. So I always say at the start, talent is not important because you don't really know. Okay. I think number one is passion. You need to really like the product. You need to really like what you're selling. This is the thing that will fuel the bad days. Lah. And the problem is because you're dealing with so much circumstance that you cannot control. Mm. Many a times you get very jaded because people just throw shit at you. People just, if they don't understand what you're trying to do. Uh, family, friends, they give you a lot of flack. They're like, oh, why are you doing this? Alcohol stuff. And then long hour, low pay, little respect. When you start. If you don't have passion, right, huh, you're out. You're out very fast. And you look at your friends, your peers, especially if you're educated or you grew up in a well-to-do family. And that's probably my, how, how you get into wine in the first place. And then you see that, oh, your brothers, your cousins, your friends, all from good schools and they are bankers, lawyers, doctors. They're very typical Singaporean kind of uh, success story. And then here you are writing it out. So I started off $1,250. Eh. Mm. And then my friends were starting out $2,800, just a junior level position in the bank. I'm not saying my friends don't grind like crazy. Eh. They also grind like crazy. But they, at least you see they got money to spend on the weekends. Then you grind like crazy on your weekend, you still got to call back to work. 
And then you see the return, right, on investment is more like, not right, leh. Mm. I grind so much, but I'm still a shitty sommelier. Mm. I still so many things I don't know. Where's the end game? Where's the progression chart? You know, where are the milestones I can mark myself to? So it's so difficult. So definitely, definitely, without a shadow of a doubt, for me, passion. Not just because you like the product, but because you have so many bad days and so many moments in this that you will feel like, why the hell do I put myself to this? And then that's where the passion part kicks in. Because I love this thing. I, I wake up because I want to, not because I have to, you know. And then, as you go on, you realise that, oh, maybe you have some talent. Maybe. Oh, I, I, yeah, I seem to be able to pick out flavours quite quickly. Hey, not bad, like, I can memorise things quite well, you know. Ah, yeah, <laughs> it's not bad. I, 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 I see customers seem to enjoy what I pick. Thanks for listening to Foolish Careers. If you enjoyed this episode, there's more where that came from. Just subscribe to the Foolish Careers newsletter. You'll get a new story a week featuring a storyteller, artist, or creative entrepreneur in Asia who ignored the advice to get a more sensible career. So subscribe today at foolishcareers.asia. We look forward to hearing from you.